Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Today, more people are getting a glimpse behind the veil of what we think of as reality. They're having a crack-in-the-sky moment during their daily meditation or yoga class or on a psychedelic journey or maybe even just walking down the street on a bright spring day. Suddenly, their materialist assumptions are exposed as illusions. Their very idea of self is revealed to be an illusion. Their old clothes don't seem to fit, nor does their job or even relationships. And they're recognizing that we live in an era of reinvention. The opportunities are huge. The challenges are real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If you're into what we're doing here, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcast app of your choice. Share this episode with buds at the Metaphysical Book Club, leave a rating on iTunes, and post about it on social media. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net. You can follow us on Instagram at theevolverpodcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. At the moment when our planet is faced with ecological meltdown, in the midst of what scientists call the sixth great extinction, something extraordinary is happening. Plants from the most biodiverse area on Earth are sending up a flare to get our attention, realigning our focus onto what really matters in life. Our religious traditions, and then the cold-eyed gaze of science, have somehow led us away from honoring and respecting the intelligence of the plant kingdom. But now that we're on the verge of possibly wiping ourselves out, the wisdom of plants is reasserting itself. The unfortunate fact is that most of us can't go to visit the Amazon rainforest ourselves. The forest couldn't handle 7 billion primate tourists anyway. Instead, the forest sent an emissary to come visit with us. That messenger, ayahuasca, is the remarkable product of a vine and a leaf, brewed into a tea so thick and acrid that no one in their right mind would be called to drink it for the taste. But the message that comes through the drinking experience is so clear, you put up with the taste. Remarkably, that message from the emissary of plant intelligence is not one of panic, not one of fear, not one of anger and retribution. Rather, it lays out a path of healing, understanding, and forgiveness based in an all-embracing love. It connects you to your heart. It reminds you that you are divine and immortal. Of course. Most of us don't want to hear that, because embracing this understanding as your reality means relinquishing a slew of assumptions about what it's supposed to matter in your life. Everything's turned upside down, like having your house ransacked. But then you realize you never really needed that old house anyway. Our society is due for a massive reshuffling of priorities, with healing moving to the central position. By healing, I don't mean only addressing your personal wounds, though that's certainly a big part of it. But there's a violence that humanity has been inflicting upon nature, 
on the great mother who gave birth to all of us, which no longer serves us. And that healing is going to require a great deal of attention. At the same time, that call for healing is an invitation to a way of being that offers each of us a path towards infinite growth. It's actually pretty cool when you stop to think about it. Saving the planet is also the best way for you to connect personally to your divine self. These are the kinds of realizations that come when you walk the plant-spirit medicine path. No one owns this understanding. It's quite frankly common among the folks who commit to this kind of work. I was so tickled to discover that I shared much of this perspective, which I just laid out, with my guest today, Josh Radner. You're always happy when you find a fellow traveler, but as you're about to hear, the downloads we've received are pretty parallel. I really got a kick out of that. Josh is one of those people who you think, he's so good at all these things. Is that allowed? He starred in a hit TV show, How I Met Your Mother. He starred in a Broadway play, Disgraced, that won a Tony for Best Play. He directed two films, including Happy Thank You, More Please, which won the Sundance Film Festival Audience Award and was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize. He writes books, the first of which he pulled back from the publisher because he talked too honestly in it about the stuff that we discussed today on the show. He's a musician, and he's in a band with the great Ben Lee. Their first album, Radner and Lee, was released in 2017. He's currently acting in a new show for Amazon, The Hunt, produced by Jordan Peele. On top of all of this, as you will hear, he's a mensch. I met Josh through our mutual friend, Brett Kaufman, who we mentioned, and who I also hope to have on the show sometime in the not-too-distant future. This was my first conversation with Josh, and I wasn't prepared for where it was going to lead. I knew he meditated, and I saw a reference to him and ayahuasca somewhere up on the internet, but I didn't realize he had such a deep and thoughtful relationship to plant spirit medicine. One important note, because we're clearly having so much fun talking about our shared passion for the brew, I want to make sure to get across an important point. Psychedelics in general, and ayahuasca in particular, are not for everyone. You can have an incredibly powerful mystical experience without psychedelics. I know many people whose connection to source and to visionary experience does not involve ayahuasca or anything else that they imbibe, and I've had a bunch of them on the show. For some people, psychedelics are really not helpful. I just have to be honest about that. But I also don't prescribe to the attitude that the psychedelic experience, particularly with plants, is a cheap shortcut of some kind. I have found it to be the opposite. The universe is awash in profound spiritual energies. Some of the greatest teachers available to us monkeys come from the spirits of plants. And believe me, they have more to teach than we're capable of learning over the course of a mere 100 years. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? 
Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. So did you meditate today? I'll tell you something. I did, but not as long as I like to. How long do you like to? 20. And uh, like, was it? Sh- it was under 10. Yeah, yeah, I just, I was a little, uh, yeah, I, I had to get out the door. You do it once a day, twice a day? You know, I, I was a twice daily meditator for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like a once maybe daily meditator. And on the, uh, rare occasions I do too. But what happened? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You, you know, part of it was, and I'm just coming up with this in this moment, but I think is probably true is that I've been such a good student my whole life. I'm such a diligent doer of things. Mm-hmm. And I think I've been experimenting with, if I don't meditate twice a day, I'm going to live and still thrive. You know what I mean? Like in like the non-doing has been important to me, like just to experiment with like, oh, I don't need to do that twice a day like the TM teacher taught me or else I would fall into an abyss. I was sick the last two days and I, and I find it very hard to meditate when I was sick, when I'm sick. So I think I had a little bit of like sick restlessness this morning. Um, but I'm, I'm a semi-diligent meditator. So TM is what spoke to you? It's just what I learned. You have tried anything else? No, I, I want to do a Vipassana, but I'm terrified of it. Ten days of silence. Or even three days scares me. Oh my God. No, I've never tried it. Yeah. (laughs) It scares me. No, I aspire to, I want, what I really want is the 10 days. Yeah. Then I 
might be able to do it. My, my best friend from high out. school, who, who Brent knows really well, he's done two or three of the 10 days. And uh, he always comes back kind of, um, you know, newly born. Do you know uh, uh, that book, Sapiens? You know that? Oh, of course, um, yeah. yeah. So, so that say writer. What that, yeah, that writer. His, you, Yuval. Yuval Harari, yeah. I think his name Yeah, I think that's right. Um, he does a three-month Vipassana every year in India, November, December, and January. And then he writes and tours and teaches, I think, for the rest of the nine months. And, and everyone in his life knows that it's non-negotiable. It's not question. He just does this three-month Vipassana. And the craziest thing was in 2015, going into 16, he didn't know Donald Trump had been elected until the last day of January because he was in this three-month meditation. <laughs> that, so, I mean, I, you, know, you almost get fuck. jealous. Oh, well, yeah. Yes. <laughs> he had a, I mean, it's he a, had nice a little thing, bit longer yeah. than we, we had. I mean, yeah, I sort of think maybe the world is saner than you thought it was. Yeah. That... But I, I like though. I like Ooh. the idea that that he's obviously so prolific and at the top of his game, and he's got nine months of the year to work with him, and he takes three months to just saturate and in, in whatever. So. Well, you know, maybe that's what most of us need is to actually figure out how how to do less, to how to do, do less yeah. well. What's that phrase they say? Um, do do much, achieve little; do less, achieve more; do nothing, achieve everything. You ever heard that? I haven't, but I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the closest I get to is you know, I didn't have enough time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I'm always nav or navigating kind of how I could do a little bit less. Like one of the things I found in acting is older actors are com incredibly compelling, but you can't. They they seem to be doing nothing. They seem to be doing a lot less than the young actors who are really like, you know, singing for their supper. And and you, I'm working with Al Pacino right now on this show, and it's like unbelievable to be up close to a guy who just is. Um, I mean, obviously he's a world class talent, <laughs> but it, you know, there's something about older actors they don't waste any energy, and they just do. There's like there's a life lesson in that. That's you know so I mean? interesting because especially when he was younger. He could be pretty energetic. Yeah, and he still has some of that. Like you can see that kind of electricity behind the eye, but his he's older, so his movements are much more econ economical. That's know? so cool. Yeah. yeah, so I think that's actually a good part of, you know, sort of life lesson. Yeah, 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 yeah. You begin to, you know, over time, let go of, this, of the extraneous stuff. And I think nature takes care of some of that for you in that you don't have as much energy, simply. So you, 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 you manage your energy a little bit better. I also found, you know, there's something fascinating to me about aging is that um, I used to be able to sleep in until like 1230 or one. And now I can't sleep past like seven, at 730. <laughs> so I, I feel like it's nature's way of just getting you to enjoy the mornings. That may be you know? part of it. Yeah. You don't have kids yet. No. No. That, no. When that the kid, also will that do it. That will definitely do it. Do it. Yeah. Oh my God. I haven't yeah. seen the other side of, you know, basically, you know, six, six, fifteen, six thirty. Yeah. We're up, man. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. It happened. But I didn't even know I liked the mornings, much less that they existed until a couple years ago when I just found I couldn't sleep in anymore. That is kind of, and then you were at the same time drinking less? Uh, yeah. That may have something to do with yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Because I used to have to sleep it off. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. My body wanted less to know alcohol the older I got. I can yeah. feel that. Yeah. Well, did you find that the TM... Had anything to do with a it? A little bit. It, it coincided a little bit. I think I started doing TM in 2003 or four, And then my first kind of spate of not drinking, I didn't drink for about four years, starting in uh, 2007, 2008. So yeah, I mean, yeah. And then, and then I, I, I kind of went back and decided to drink a little bit for two years and that didn't work. And then I didn't drink for three years. And then 
I tried it again. It just didn't work. It doesn't work. Well, <laughs> and uh, so what came first? Was it TM or ayahuasca? TM. Ayahuasca is the reason I stopped drinking, though. I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the yeah. reason I stopped drinking. Do you find that that plant hates alcohol? Yes. Absolutely. Well, I found that over and over again. What I found, well, it was, it may well hate alcohol. Yeah. But it was more that it was sensitizing my body to the poison that is alcohol. Correct. That, so that it, as I would drink, yeah. I hadn't noticed what it was doing to me. And then right. suddenly I realized, oh my God, right. I was conscious and now I'm getting numb. And I'm getting numb because there's this weird thing that the alcohol is doing to my body. Right. And I can feel the heaviness. Right, right, right. Yeah. I also, I, I, I tend to think of it as like, you got to decide if you want what you drink to make you more conscious or less conscious. And I felt like ayahuasca was contributing to a heightening of consciousness and the alcohol was degrading my consciousness. Totally. But what happened was I was, um, so I went to Brazil and I drank, like I did six ceremonies in Bahia on the Northeast coast of Brazil. Um, what kind of ceremony? Do you remember? They were, it was with a Colombian shaman just on the beach, like long ceremonies, you know, and kind of like stay up until the sunrise rose and it was gorgeous. Yeah. And then I went to Colombia with the same group uh, in Armenia, this in the jungle. And on my second ceremony, which would probably be the, it was probably the eighth ceremony I ever did. Um, my whole evening was about my drinking. I just, and I, it was not on my radar to stop drinking. Huh. And I saw how hooked it had me. How much were you drinking then? I was drinking enough to have an evening about ayahuasca that examined my drinking. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and it wasn't, I, you know, when I quit drinking, a lot of people were like, you're, you're not a, I wasn't a bad drunk. You know, I was a charming drunk. I was like, I was, I was fine. I, I, I didn't, you know, but what, um, interestingly, so I did these six ceremonies. I came back for the summer and I had this really sloppy, messy evening of, with this woman in Columbus and she had a boyfriend, which I didn't quite care about because I was off the rails. Right. And I got punched in this parking lot uh, at the end of the night twice. And, and really, my nose, was, I was bleeding all over my mom's car. Like it was by really dark by the boyfriend. Yeah, he kind of jumped me in the parking lot at the end of the night when I dropped her off. This is kind of like, was it a deja vu moment from the show? I uh, remember you had a- Which show? Uh, oh, How I Met Your Mother? You, didn't you get hit? I got punched a couple times. Yeah, I remember there was yeah, like, uh, there, there was, was a some, boyfriend moment. There were some weird things where things would happen to me that happened on the show or vice versa. Like things would happen to me and then they'd happen in the show. It was very strange. It and was that was like, not scripted into the show before anybody uh, yeah, I think knew I was, that uh, it was no, part of your life. Punched, I was punched on the show after I had been punched in life, I think. Okay. If we're thinking of the same thing. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, and... Uh, you know, that was part of my evening was examining like, oh, I was so drunk. I, I never should have been driving. You know, it was, it was a really dark evening in my life, right? Yeah. And um, so I had this whole evening that was, you know, there was Native American imagery. And um, the other thing was I had just moved into my house and I had a, a barbecue on the 4th of July. And I hadn't moved in yet, but I had a barbecue at the house. And my friend and I, she since stopped drinking also not long after, we went to like a BevMo or whatever, and we bought, there were probably 50 people, but we had alcohol for like 120. Like we had so much alcohol. And I realized when I was in Colombia that my house was filled with nothing but alcohol. I had moved nothing in there, but this leftover alcohol was there. And I thought, how oh, interesting. That's the first thing I moved into my house Ooh. was all this booze. Yeah. So, and you know, I have alcoholism in my family and it just at a certain point, um, it just, it just, 
it started to feel like I was more committed to the medicine work and all that work. And it, and it felt like I was trying to have both worlds. And at a certain point, I felt like I was being asked to choose, you know? That's powerful. Yeah, it, it really was. It, was it, it hit in the moment? When you were down, or I guess when you come back, you'd had that, you, know, I you called, got hit in I, the face, I, literally. I, I felt like I was being asked slash invited to stop drinking. And I called my friend who uh, got sober when I was in grad school at NYU. And he's a dear friend of mine, still one of my best friends. And I called him from the Miami airport and I said, I think I'm, I'm supposed to stop drinking. And I started crying because I was like, it was so emotional for me, the idea that I could have a social life without drinking. I was just a guy who ordered drinks everywhere, you know? So uh, he said a great thing. He said, um, nature loves a vacuum. And you take away all that energy and all that psychic space and everything you're doing, something else is going to come in. And, and interestingly, my career took some changes after that. Like I, you know. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I started directing films. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You think that wouldn't have happened if you were still drinking? Who's to say, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, um, I, I've gathered enough research. And, and again, I'm hesitant because I drank a little bit last year. I'm hesitant to like get on podcasts and say, oh, I don't drink. And someone's going to see me with a glass of wine and be whatever. But, um, y- you know, from, from, from where I am right now, I've done enough research to know like alcohol and me is not a great combo if I want to live a kind of creative, engaged, conscious life that I'm, that I'm aspiring to. That's so cool. Did, yeah. you, did you find, you were doing TM before you went to Brazil. Yeah. Um, in my ayahuasca experience in New York, yeah. every so often, folks will show up who do transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, when I was young, I did psychedelics. And that's what turned me on to spiritual stuff. Right. And I started doing... TM, you're not supposed to be doing that. Right. Don't tell anybody I'm here. You know these three other people in my TM circle. Yeah. Never mention to them yeah. that I am here with you tonight drinking yeah. ayahuasca. I'm, I, I've been in enough spiritual groups that have like rules and boundaries and borders and regulations that I don't, I don't buy any of it. Like I, <laughs> I feel, first of all, I learned outside of the TM umbrella. I learned from a kind of rogue teacher. To be honest, I think he's a terrific meditation teacher, but at a certain point I had to leave him just as I've had to leave every spiritual teacher I've ever been with. Um, I sometimes feel like, and, and, and again, I mean, if you learn from him, you'll learn a good practice. But I, I sometimes feel like people are trying to create a container or a thing that can, will make you want to go, don't tell anyone I'm here. Don't tell anyone I'm doing this. Or you know what I mean? It becomes like a, there's a group think that starts to happen. And I was very deep in a spiritual community that was like ayahuasca based for years with a Peruvian guy. And it, and it got, I, I had to leave it and, I, and I'm still processing it. And I left about three years ago, three and a half years ago. So I, I'm just very suspicious of the group mind, you know, and it, and it took me a while to uh, wake up from certain spells I think I was under. But I think everybody, and that's a healthy impulse. That's a really healthy impulse. Yeah. You know, there, there's that phrase, that Lao Tzu quote, that everyone quotes all the time, but they miss the second part of it. Oh, what's so that? So the first part is, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. The second part of it, less quoted, is when the student is really ready, the teacher will disappear. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So I found that part of my journey around these teachers and these spiritual groups is the leaving of them is a powerful moment in the teaching. And I feel that any teacher who is creating a dependency and not empowering you to go out, 
you know, like I think Adyashanti, you know, that spiritual, he's a, a Buddhist spiritual teacher. You know, he was told at one point by his teacher, like, get out. Like, you got to leave the monastery and go teaching, teach now. Like, you got to get out of here. And I, and I feel like that's a wise teacher who, who kicks you out of your comfort and who also says, you're, you're becoming too dependent on me, you know? Yeah. Well, um, that's, a, that's a, also a healthy teacher who isn't playing into the ego game. Exactly. Of the, the exactly. power trip of and I've meeting been so, the people to I've come to their so door. I've been so hooked by teachers. So hooked. And, and part of it is this, um, you know, everything is, uh, part of it is a sweet impulse, which is like, I'm a good student. I want, I, I recognize that the world is madness and my mind is madness and I need some guidance and some help. But the darker part of it is, you know, shame or uh, a feeling that I can't do this without some like steady hand, you know? And part of growing up for me has been saying like, I think I can, I think I know enough to stand on my own two feet. And I don't recommend that to everyone. I mean, I think some people really need, I would recommend certain people like, no, 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 find a community, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. get a teacher. <laughs> but, but for me, there were these painful kind of what felt archetypal, you know, it was time to go. Yeah. yeah. It, I actually, what I think is going on and I kind of have a quirky vantage point from doing the sort of work I've been doing for the last few years yeah. is that an awful lot of people are doing what you do. They're going into one modality and another and another, maybe simultaneously. They're doing the TM yeah. and the IOI or whatever. They're doing some meditation yeah. and a plant-based you yeah. know, sort of ex exploration. And maybe they're also learning Qigong at the same time. And then they're moving between different modalities and yeah. they're weaving things together. And you stay with one thing for a while as you go deeper with it. And you're discovering what the underlying truths to it are. Yeah. And then something else is calling and then something else is calling. And I was talking about this with John Kabat-Zinn, mm -hmm. meditations teacher. Yeah, I love couple, his books. Yeah. He's an amazing guy. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago. And his immediate response to that was, well, you know, that's just like, you know, supermarket shopping. Right. Right. You're not committing to go deep. Right. In a lineage. Right. And that is how I kind of grew up hearing about these things. Right. Like, the idea is that, in fact, you should commit. Right. But I got to say, I'm coming more and more around to the other way of seeing it. Mm -hmm. That there's something really powerful about uh, not about going deep and being true to yourself and knowing what you need in order to grow. Right. But, you know, sampling all kinds of different modalities so that you can discover, in fact, what's underneath them beyond the sort of the cultural overlays. Yeah. It's a little bit like someone saying, like, don't travel to lots of places, travel to one place and go deep into the culture. And it's like, well, it's really fun to travel to lots of different places. <laughs> there's fascinating places on the earth and there's fascinating traditions mm -hmm. and there's lots of tributaries pointing to the one ocean. But it's you know? also true that when you go to one culture, you only see what that culture is really interested in. Right. So like some cultures are really into spicy food, right? right? But they don't do ice cream. Right. Let's just say, right? Right. But you want to also like learn about ice cream. <laughs> so sure, you kind of yeah. go somewhere but else. But also, you know, I'm really, I'm really clear on this idea that everyone's only ever talking about themselves. So John Kabat-Zinn is like, he's a mindfulness practitioner and that's what he's done and that's what he's gone deep in and that's what he's written his books about. And that's, so of course he's going to, he's going to advocate for that, mm -hmm. you know, but I feel ultimately like, you know, I have, I have, you know, I've studied the Vedas. I've been, you know, with the, you know, the Karos tribe in Peru. And I've been to India, to different ashrams and all these different things, you know. And they've all been powerful in their own ways. But I, 
I keep coming back to this idea, you know, um, there's this famous Aldous Huxley at the end of his life was asked, you know, at the, a lifetime of spiritual seeking, um, you've, you've done it all. You've taken every substance you've, you've, you've sat with every tribe. What did you get? Like what, what, if you could synthesize it, what, what did you get? And he said, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but this is it. Just try to be a little kinder. Ooh. Right. Yeah. And I, and I really, I, I keep coming back to this, like no fuss spirituality, like we all know people who are, you know, who have the altar and who have the whatever, but they're a mess or they're gossipy or they're, you know what I mean? Like they feel out of integrity, but they're doing all the things. They're wearing all the costumes oh and all that stuff. Yeah, of course. And then I know people who, you know, wouldn't know a what a mantra is or what, you know, anything. They don't know who Krishna is or <laughs> Ganesh in their doorway. It doesn't matter. But they're intensely empathetic. They're intensely um you know, charitable or kind or just a good friend. And that's what I'm starting to feel like spirituality is because if it's not leading to that, I do think it's worthless. Then it's just, then it's just costumes and fetishes and, and uh, it's, you're trying to find a personality through cultural appropriation. Oh no, there's an awful lot you of know? that. And, and this is what, you know, Trungpa writes about as spiritual materialism. Right, exactly. It's essentially like, hey man, I know how to meditate because I got the robes. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I got a great cushion. Look at my cushion. Right. You know, I right. sit. There, I can sit there for hours. It's right. so comfortable. It's the best cushion. Right. There is this other level, though, that I think seems to be happening now, and I'm wondering if you're seeing the same thing. Yeah. Where, because let's see, there's what nine nine percent of the workforce now meditates. Uh huh. Wow. Is that right? It's real. Wow. Thirty seven million Americans do yoga. Wow. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. Thirty percent of the country adults, I guess, have done some kind of psychedelic. Uh huh. All right. A lot of folks are opening to this different way of seeing reality. Right. Which is, you know, essentially a, not a materialist way. Right. Which is not what the mainstream of the society acknowledges. Right. And you don't see, like you see this stuff covered in the New York Times, it's totally dismissive. Totally. Yeah. I, I, it drives me crazy how dismissed it is, and especially the New York Times. It's like, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, at, yeah. at the same time, even the writers themselves may not believe it when they write it, but they know that they're That's editors. The in -house, it's the in-house <laughs> style. They have to dismiss you it. you got to do it, yeah, right? yeah. So there's this kind of, on the one hand, more and more people having direct experiences right. that are outside of religion, traditional religions, but outside traditional lineages even, yep. right? Where, you know, if you're a, um, if you're meditating at work because you think it's going to help you reduce your stress yeah, and you're just doing the practice and after a year or so, you stick with it and you go deeper with it, you're going to start to see light yeah. with your eyes closed. Yeah. And then you're going to wonder what that is. Right. Right. And often the teachers who are teaching those classes don't know because they haven't gone there. Right. 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 <laughs> right? So there's something that's going on where a lot of people, and we're seeing this, this, you know, just because of the kind of stuff that I do, I, we're kind of like a magnet for people who are having those kinds of wake up moments, these crack in the sky things. Right. It feels like the conversation shifts. You can talk more publicly about these kinds of experiences than you used to even just a few years ago. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You can say ayahuasca and people know what you're talking about when you did it in 2007 or whatever yeah how oh, many people I, I, even knew what it was i was i was very um i was obsessed with this idea of how do you talk about this publicly and should you interesting and i i actually wrote and sold a book to a major publisher and i didn't feel like my editor a understood the book nor was going to take care of me in the in the, the through the thickets of the publicity mm -hmm. because i knew that fox news would do you know sitcom star advocates hallucinogenic use like that's that would be the headline totally and there was no way to avoid that but then i just quietly kept doing it and kept 
you know, so you mentioned brain, it in the book. The whole book was almost about ayahuasca. The whole seventy-five percent of the book was about ayahuasca. Yeah, I hadn't really, I hadn't gotten the book yet. No, the book is never published. I, I wait a I, minute. No, no, no. I pulled it. I didn't do. Oh it. no, no. So this I, I need... returned the advance, and I never published the book. I saw an excerpt, a paragraph or something. There is no paragraph. On a cover, on a, there was some coverage of it. I found online. Uh, I don't know. I think it that leaked, is so it interesting. leaked that it was being published. Yes. like right when I was at Sundance one year, it was like this really weird thing. But I was, I had already decided to return the advance and not publish. I'm, I'm doing another book where I do mention it a little bit. Um, but it is much easier. I used to people even on podcasts would say, "Can we talk about the ayahuasca?" And I go, "Let's not." And now I talk about it freely <laughs> because so many people have done it, and and I I did so much of it that I, I you know. My early experiences with it, I was such a zealot around it. And I was such, and I think this is one of the things that I always tell people is like, do 10 to 15 ceremonies before you talk about it publicly. Because when you do one and want to write about it, you, you know, you, you preach with the enthusiasm of the newly converted, but there's so many more lessons. Like when people say, I'm doing it again, what can you tell me? I say, the only thing I tell you is hundred percent, it'll be different. It's just going to be different. So if you get your sample size a little larger, you can actually start to make sense of what, what that thing is and what, you know, and I, I'm now, I mean, I'm well over a hundred ceremonies and I, I don't know what it is. Oh, well, I don't know. I yeah. mean, it, it, my certainty has been so eroded around what I think that thing is nor, or, or what is, I mean, I, I understand the benefit because I do feel like it's really important, especially for people saturated in the kind of material West to have non-material trans uh, you know amplification of consciousness experiences that are th that 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 take you out of um the material realm that show you that you're not your your body and your mind you know mm -hmm. there's something way bigger going on and i think that's invaluable i noticed the more i meditated and the more uh psychedelics i did um i didn't cease to fear pain bodily pain i still fear that but i i start i stopped fearing death in a, in a pretty profound way. Like I, I stopped thinking that my own extinction was a horror level event. Like I, I just don't believe that I'm going to be fully done after this. I am so with you. Yeah. And part of that was the experiences I had with ayahuasca around the time of my mother's death, mm -hmm. which was profound and a long story, which I'm not well, going to yeah. dive into here particularly, but it was so clear when she was going at that yeah. point that this was a transition. Yeah. And interestingly, the, 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 the DMT, the active ingredient in ayahuasca, is we release it from our pineal gland, but never more so than at birth and death. So the pineal gland floods the baby's brain with DMT and floods the dying person's brain with DMT. So I think that's, I think that's why they call it the vine of death, that it, it approximates or, or comes close to the, the transitory kind of, you know, the bardos and all this stuff. Well, it certainly opens up the kind of... The what seem to be clear walls between these different states yeah, and introduces this more, you know, the invisible aspect of existence. Yeah. And then, and then I also, you know, I was, I was kind of agnostic about spirits, ghosts, whatever. And, and then you, you, you know, with the right, with the right healthy dose, you step into a world that's very populated and it's oh. not populated with bodies. It's populated with entities or spirits and it can be alarming and some of them don't entirely feel benevolent, but a lot do, you know, and just, just feeling like, oh, there's a lot more going on. What's that Horatio? There's a lot more than is dreamt of in your philosophy. Oh yeah. Heaven and earth, you know, that oh, yeah, uh, Hamlet yeah. line. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it does feel like that's almost a psychedelic uh, line. Well, this is the thing is that, that, that in our society where we're raised to be so materialist and yeah. so cut off from that aspect of what it is to be on the planet, yeah. it took psychedelics, it took my ayahuasca, frankly, yeah. to get me to even begin to recognize that possibility. Totally. Because yeah. I was so cut off. Yeah. I was completely a secular materialist at, at, at such a, you know extreme level yeah. that even when I began to drink, the plant medicine and it began to show me things, little bits and pieces yeah. of like that would get revealed. It was done in the strategic way almost to kind of move me past one barrier of resistance totally. to the next. There's a kind of next. course plan. Right. Like it's, exactly. it's, it's scheduled. It's, it's, it's a progressive revelation. <laughs> yeah. And it seems to pick Sneaky up where you smart. left off at the last ceremony. And it's really strange. Oh, massively yeah. like that. For me, what was really interesting was I, I think what happened to me, I was so in love with acting and that the theater was my church and i achieved a certain level of success that i thought would eradicate despair from my life and in fact the experience of of being known of of being more visible um it's never how you want it to be or how you think it's going to be and all you're focused on is the people that don't get you or you, you know you you go a little crazy so so it actually amplifies your despair and it can. I mean, most people I think who've been through that would echo some version of that, that, that it, it didn't solve anything. In fact, it brought on more problems. And, and the other thing is the circle of people you can complain to about it is very small. You can only complain to other people who are on a hit television show because none of your <laughs> none of your other actor friends want to hear you complain, right? Yeah, exactly. No, so, and everybody else thinks it's self-indulgent. Yeah. It's like, come on, you got everything you, got it, you want. You got it, yeah, it all. On, Shouldn't man. you be happy? You're right. And I think there was a reason that I, we filmed two, two seasons of How I Met Your Mother and I found myself in a kind of depression. It wasn't like a clinical depression. It was like a deep melancholy, you know? And I, 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 I wrapped season two and I, I like a couple hours later, I was on a plane to Brazil. Really? Yeah. I just went right, I skipped the rap party. I went right in. Whoa. And, um, I had this very funny experience where I was feeling the, the, the mother energy so strongly because it's such a, it's always been a, except for one ceremony I had, like it was a real masculine kind of presence. It's always been this feminine madre kind of energy. Mm -hmm. And I was on the beach in Brazil and I just remember going, how I met your mother. Like the big mother. Boom. And I realized like <laughs> the title of my, my show had this like grand idea behind it, almost like a matriarchal energy to it you know it, that, that was coming in at just the right moment yeah, the divine yeah. feminine is entering exactly, the consciousness of exactly. the culture and i was at the center of it it was really it's not father's knows best exactly exactly <laughs> the word mother was and i think that in some weird i hope no weird outlet picks this up and miss you know miss <laughs> runs with this headline but in some weird way i always felt that there was a percolating kind of new thing going on at the okay because it's it's hard for me to understand why that show was and continues to be so popular even though i kind of get it but i think that that that's part of it is it's like it just had a feminine heart that's beautiful you know what i, I mean? love that yeah no, well this is how these things emerge in the culture yeah actually yeah. because they're like you know artists have these antenna mm -hmm. and you pick things up that just feels right it resonates in the body yeah it's you like, know that leonard schlain book i haven't read it but i i picked it up it's called, i think it's called art and physics yes yeah, sure yeah the idea that artists um, will actually get a hit and start writing, or do making things that the physicists and the scientists will then, or they're happening kind of simultaneously. Artists are picking up vibrations of what's happening in the culture at a deep level, yeah, and they know what it feels like in their body, and they're 
then expressing it through their work. Yeah. Right. And yeah. they're saying, this is how I, this is what I see. And the mother is stepping forward and there's certain meditation and consciousness things that sort of slip into the popular yeah. culture. And that's all part of like the Aquarian prophecy, you know, the destruction of the patriarchy, the rise of kind of matriarchal, the feminine face of God on the ascendant, all this stuff totally. is really happening. And you can see it. That's why it's freaking people out. Yeah. These structures are collapsing, you know, structures like the uh, movie studios, governments, Catholic church, like all these things are, it's part of the deal. It's part of what's happening. It's huge right now. Yeah. Yeah. You can feel it and, shaking. And, it, and it's, and it's really rattling people who are so in this kind of Piscean mindset mm -hmm. because they're, you know, and you, you have Obama who was really quite an Aquarian president. I mean, he had a, a real balanced masculine and feminine, oh, which yeah. people aren't used to seeing, which is so beautiful mm -hmm. for people who were attuned to it it's beautiful and then you elect this guy who's like this piscean nightmare <laughs> you know <laughs> to kind of like because yeah. it snaps back yeah but i think you know for me and i think for a lot of people there's this some and, and this is going back to the idea of so many people meditating and doing yoga i think there's this collective sense that hasn't been totally articulated but some people are talking about it and i try to talk about it that the old model is simply not working people are in despair if you if you're talking about how many people are addicted to pain medication, you got to talk about why is there so much pain, and that's not just obviously physical pain. That's a psych. That's a deep psychic pain. What is going on? Why are why you know? And not to demonize people who are on antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication, but why is there so much need for it? Why why are we? Why is it so hard to be alive right now? Why is there so much acute agony to the basics of living? Mm -hmm. You know, I think we've been divorced from community. You know, I think we're tribal creatures. Like, I always get so happy. I would get so happy on those ayahuasca retreats because I'd be in nature with a group of people. You know what I mean? And I'd start to feel like, I think this is how we're supposed to be. Taking our meals together, you know, praying right. together. Right. You, you know, no, you know, and feeling viscerally that connection yeah, to nature. Yeah. Which, you know, even, you know, I spent a bunch of time in the suburbs when I was in high school. I never had that feeling of nature in my body somehow mm -hmm. because it just wasn't part of my cultural framing. Yeah. But with the plant medicine, I got that. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It kind of um, reacquaints you with your primal connection with trees and plants and dirt and yeah. you, you know I mean it really does. No, totally. So what I I'm so with you about what's happening at yeah. this moment in history. Yeah, and I think that's why ayahuasca and other other psychedelics are are are, are emerging and and kind of taking having a moment. You know because it also feels like when the natural world is being destroyed with such haste and recklessness that they're. Of course, there you know these ambassadors from the plant kingdom would try to reach out and make contact. I mean, it's almost like an alien movie; like they're making contact. This is literally—I feel this is literally what's happening. Yeah, is that the plant kingdom 
is knocking on the door totally. of us stupid apes, yeah. going, pay attention. Yeah. Do you realize that your your gut biome is mostly bacteria that is not part of your body? Right. That you're part of this ecosystem right. in a deep way? Right. And if you screw it all up for everybody else, you're screwing yourselves. Yeah. Pay attention. Yeah. And the plants are just like, you know, ayahuasca is coming out of the jungle. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't here that long. You know, you don't have to go back very far before it was unavailable. Yeah. You could not get ayahuasca not in the 50s States. Or 1940s or no, in the 70s, yeah. 80s. I mean, but but didn't Burroughs go down and all? Was it Burroughs or? William yeah. Burroughs in the, the 50s. The Yaya letters, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. So he went because one other American that he knew of had done this and he had right. read, he was an academic, I think it was Richard Schultz from Harvard. Right, right. And he's like, I got to check this out. Yeah. So he went on a journey. And he yeah. went down and he, and he did, he found ayahuasca and he did not have a good time. Right. In fact, I remember reading it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he did not encourage anybody else to do it. Yeah. And he never went and did it again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Several years later, Ginsburg went to Mexico, I yeah. believe it was Mexico, and found it yeah. and did it once. Yeah. Right. Ginsburg actually credited it for sort of a breakthrough for him, yeah. for himself. But he never did it again either. And they certainly never encouraged anybody else to go do it. It just seemed like the farthest yeah. thing out you could possibly do is like, no, man, don't do that. Do mescaline. Do, <laughs> do yeah. LSD. Yeah. I'm, I'm much more cautious about encouraging people to do it these days just because, um, I, you know, I don't think everyone, I like, uh, I, like, I like exploring my mind. I just do. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious where, what's behind this door. You know, what's the crevice? And some people, I think, I think most people could benefit from some people, which would not be their thing. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't recommend my mom do it. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I did know. actually give a little to my dad once. But that said, I never advocated. I mean, yeah. despite what it might sound like on this show, yeah. the, today's episode. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing, the, yeah. the, the proselytizing. And, and I also think, you know, much like yoga, meditation, anything that our human hands get on is going to get sullied. You know what I mean? That I'm not worried about. Honestly, you don't think that, I don't ayahuasca? Nah, I think ayahuasca is a lot smarter than we are. And that it's figuring out how it wants to be distributed on this planet. Right, right. That's my own woo-woo way of looking at it. Right. And my even more woo-woo way of looking at it is that when it's right for you, someone, to do ayahuasca, it will come to you. Absolutely. It will let you know. Absolutely. I had that experience my first time I thought... When did this plant become interested in me? Interesting. Like, like I had this feeling that it had sought me out, but I didn't know how did that happen. What was what introduced you? Um, a to friend it? of mine who uh, was a, he's a screenwriter, and he's married to a friend of mine from college. And he came over one day, and he told me that they had been in Mexico, and they had done it. And I'd never heard the word before, but the word I found it it was so haunting to me. This word. I just kept saying it like it just it lingered in my head. And I and then I read um, the Pinchbeck book, uh, Breaking Open the Head, which uh, was an important book to me at the cool. time. You know, like I really and I was reading it. He was my co-founder of this company. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. That book really landed on me. And um, uh, just I, I just appreciated. You know what it was? I when people write about these matters, I want the writing to be fiercely good. Because when I read about this, it's already so suspect. 
that I want, I want, I at least want the writing to be fierce and and grammatically correct. <laughs> you know what no, I mean? Totally. And he's I he's a wonderful writer. He's a really good writer, and um, you know, I I don't love everything he writes, but I I think that uh, that book was a very fascinating. Uh, you know, he threw a pebble in the water that had a lot of ripples. I think, and um, so I read that book, and then uh, this woman I was seeing at the time said, um, "Do you want to?" Uh, oh no, it wasn't. I took her, but. Uh, it was another guy. Um, no, sorry. It was this this photographer that I knew. She said, my friend has been with this group in Brazil and this guy, Ralph Miller, is coming to talk in Santa Monica. And so I took this woman that I was seeing and I met this guy, Ralph. And within five minutes, I was like, I'm going. Like, I am going. There was no doubt. And I did two back-to-back -back sessions. You know, like I was down there for three weeks. And it oh, was you did like it was supposed to be ten days and then ten days or something. It was like? it was like uh, eight or nine days and three ceremonies each, and I did I did six, and it was um, yeah, it was it was so powerful. It was so powerful. What opened you to all of this? When did you begin to get interested in spiritual exploration? I think that I you know I went to an Orthodox Hebrew day school in Columbus. So I did half day English, half day Hebrew, and it was a pretty intense indoctrination in a lot of ways. But there were a couple teachers there that were really asked us to really meditate on God and what that might mean. And I remember we did this, this one rabbi, we, we did this visualization of walking through the woods and it was, you know, he took us through this whole deep, you know, honor lying down, eyes closed. He said, and suddenly you see God. What do you see? And what I had, what I saw was sunlight, you know, when rays of sunlight, it was just light came through. It wasn't an old man, it wasn't no beard, you know, just light. And I remember I was just um, calmed by that experience. And, and so I never, there was never any part of me that was atheist. I just, and I can't say that I've been like a super believer, but I never, I always felt some presence with me. I don't know how to describe it. I just have never felt, even when I'm alone, I don't feel alone, you know? And I think that that has inoculated me against some level of despair, that I felt some presence that was benevolent with me. And then, um, and then, like I said, I, I, you know, I went through puberty and I, you know, it was all about girls. And then it was all about um, uh, theater once I discovered the theater and that became my church or synagogue or, and, but, 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 by the time I was in grad school and a little bit after, I started to realize that its shoulders weren't big enough to bear the weight of what I was wanting it to be or needing it to be. So the process of having what I wanted happen, which was establishing this career, you know, and it's going to be 20 years since I got out of drama school. It is right around now, about 20 years. So I've been making my living as an actor for 20 years, which is statistically improbable. That you doesn't I mean? happen often. No, and it's this incredible thing. So I'm really taking this moment to pinch myself. Like, this is pretty This is pretty great. But at the same time, I did reach a limit of uh, the worship of it as it, it was revealed to be not quite a false god, but it, it couldn't... I needed something bigger and more magnificent and more mysterious to, to, I don't know, bow to or turn my attention to. So beyond... The acting profession or beyond the making of movies, TV, theater, like the whole, yeah. Like well, where... in some ways, I still look at creativity as my spiritual practice. I actually taught a, a course at Esalen with my friend David Newman called Creativity is a Spiritual Practice. Oh, really? It was great. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. But I, 
I do look at, you know, I'm a songwriter now and I have a band with my friend Ben Lee and um, playing music feels incredibly spiritual. Music has always been a portal for me, which is why Ayahuasca also has been so powerful because of the music. Right, and Ben Lee did an album called Ayahuasca. Yes, yes. yes. I brought him to the world. You did (laughs) that? I did that. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was my friend and I brought him him over there. That's sweet. We traded some emails around the time the album came out and I think we did something about it on our magazine. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a great album. It's a great album. Yeah, it's really good. Um, But... um, yeah, so, uh, and making movies is a, a very spiritual practice for me. Writing is very spiritual. And yet, um, you know, they've been complementary. It was more, in some ways, I think I started meditating because I wanted anxiety relief. I was an anxious person, and being an actor wasn't helping, you know? Like, I was just nervous. And so, so meditating helped calm me on some level. But then, once I had these experiences that felt... Um, more like uh, like a fusion with something larger than myself, which was grand and beautiful and a relief. I then started to go, I think there's more, like way more going on here. So then ayahuasca, I suppose you could say, like it was part of this attempt to get me out of this melancholy that had descended around being on this hit show. <laughs> but, but more it was this highway uh, to... Um, you know, this incredible sphere of reality that I, that not a lot of people get to visit. And I was so startled by it. I was so startled that, um, it existed. I mean, it, it, it does have the, the, the feel of a fairy tale, like, like you went to Oz, right? Like, or, or even, um, you know, I always tell people about ayahuasca. I said, here's what I think is the, one of the best things about it. And, and really any psychedelic is if you go to a church, they'll say, oh, these great men, mostly men, had these experiences. And um, you just have to take our word for it. This is what they brought back. Ayahuasca says, you are Buddha under the tree. You are Jesus in the desert. And to some people, to, to like an evangelical Christian, that would sound heretical. You'd be like, no, 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 that's not for us. You know, don't eat the fruit of the, you know. But ultimately, I feel like I can only own it if I've experienced it myself. And... You know, I've had I've had intensely powerful experiences where I felt that I was being asked to really make consequential choices. That, that you know, where you're like, oh, there are two paths ahead of me right now. I had my friend Trent, my buddy, who's I've done done a lot of medicine with. He said to me after a ceremony, he goes, "I walked down every hall wrong hallway that night." <laughs> he, said, he goes, I, "I literally opened every wrong door and walked down every hallway." He goes, "I didn't make a single right move." Oh <laughs> my the, god! The whole night. I have had nights like that. Yeah, I yeah, know what that's yeah. Like. You're just not. You're just playing catch up. But um, but at the same time, what hit me was once I started to understand that I could have those kinds of experiences for myself, I realized, whoa, there is not a person on the planet. Was not capable of having that experience, direct yeah. experience, direct experience, and yeah. that propaganda that basically says that that experience is not available to you, yeah. because for whatever reason, whether yeah. it's the, in the certain texts they say the evangelical texts, well, that period is over. Certain people were prophets. That's not happening anymore. Yeah. This idea that essentially that this core part of what it is to be human, yeah, and to be divine, to understand yourself as divine. Entheogen, to reveal the divine within. Yeah. Yeah. That it's something that should not be made available to everybody. Yeah. It's criminal to me. It, it, absolutely. And I think uh, Terrence McKenna articulates this the best in, yeah. in terms of 
the power structures wanting to keep you from doing this because at a certain point, like, you know, if you, if you spend enough time in the ayahuasca space and then you read the Washington Post, you'll be like, this is madness or Fox News, God forbid. You know what I mean? It's madness. The arms race is madness. What we're doing to the climate is madness. But because we're so saturated in it, it starts to feel like, well, this is just how life is. But ayahuasca seems to promise some other way of being that is so magical and it just sits in your heart in a different way, like a more beautiful way. Like my, my friend Charles Eisenstein has a book called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. I, I've done a lot of stuff with Charles Eisenstein. Yeah, yeah. I, I edited, I'm, I think I'm one of several people who take credit for this, but I edited Sacred Economics. Oh, I love Sacred Economics. Yeah. I, I think about that book often. Oh, brilliant. I really do. I recommend it to a lot of people. Awesome. We published the entire book chapter by chapter on Reality uh, Sandwich, our magazine. I remember that. Oh, that's great. Oh, I was a big Reality Sandwich oh, uh, reader. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Okay, yeah, that was my Adam magazine. Ellenboss is a friend of mine. Oh, that's fantastic. Of course, yeah. very well. Yeah. I edited uh, Fishers of Men. I can actually take credit for that. Okay. <laughs> I, I love that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I reached out to Adam after he wrote up this prayer for the Remember the sweat lodge deaths? Yes, of course. He wrote right. this prayer that I thought was so compassionate. And he even prayed for the leader of it. You know what I mean? Like he, yeah. there was something that was so moving to me about it. And I think I just emailed him and we became friends. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. He's a lovely guy. I haven't talked to him in a while. And he has kids now. Yeah, he's got two kids yeah. and, and married to a beautiful herbalist, Ashley. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but uh, yeah, sacred economics, I think a lot about... Um, you know, just this idea of in every uh, in in every sacred text, it outlaws usury, it outlaws interest-bearing economy. But if you tell people today, like, oh, you know, this is actually immoral. This is like this. You know, it creates debtor class. It creates exactly what happens. The wealth gets concentrated up here, and everyone else suffers. And people will be like, you can't question capitalism. Let's say uh, Richard Rohr, who's this Franciscan priest who I love. Do you know Richard Rohr? His I don't actually. His work is brilliant. Uh -huh. But he says anytime a structure or an institution becomes too big to criticize, there's probably evil going on. Totally. So the banks, the church, the military industrial complex, the government, you know, things that are kind of above. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, if you're going to be preaching the gospel, truly preaching the gospel, you have to critique capitalism. But if you critique capitalism, people will say, Father, you're getting a little political. And he said, well, how do you, how do you talk about the gospel without <laughs> critiquing the system that seems to be antithetical to the whole deal, you know? Totally. So, you, got, you got to do it. You got to go there. And I thought that's what Charles' book was doing. It was providing like this, and it was a historical context. Like I never even understood like just the experiments with non-interest bearing currency. Like that fascinated me, you know? I, I don't know. I, I, um, yeah. And, um. I miss Reality Sandwich. I, 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 was, I was really there quite a bit. Oh, we're still yeah. doing it. Oh, you are? Yeah, a little less frequently because frankly, oh, okay. we're distracted. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I know. But, but when I was discovering medicine, that was a very reliable place to feel like there was a community out there beyond the one I knew. Brilliant. That there were other people. That's why I reached out to Adam. And I forget if that's how I... I started reading Charles there, but um, I, 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 I knew um, Stella, his wife. Oh, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. And we did her, her book, LA. too. We also published I her book. I read her book, which yeah. is great. She sent me an early copy of oh, that. Oh, sweet. So I, I got to know uh, Charles through her. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there are... Charles is a voice that I tell people, like, check in with Charles Eisenstein. I love that Oprah had him on because I think he's such a big thinker, you know, and he's such a visionary. Yeah, no, you know? he resonates deep, and I think he sees through stuff. He's a terrific... Um, 
diagnostician. You know, like he really can diagnose um, collectively, like what's going on and where we're we're hurting and where we're off. And he's um he's got a bit, and he marries some. He's got heart to it, you know. Totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, no, he's can't say enough good things about Charles. Yeah. The what I think is happening at the moment, which I think Charles would probably agree with on some level, is all the all of the diagnostics. I think how thoroughly fucked up everything is. I think you're on target. Yeah. But something else is also happening simultaneously, right? And that is the emergence of this new, well, Charles would call it a new story. Right. I would say, or other people, you know, you can talk about it. Essentially, it's, it's a cultural movement. It's a consciousness culture. Yeah. Where people are getting turned on, mm-hmm. and it may be because the plants are doing it, but or something in the field is doing it. Right. But there's this sense of, people shifting their own understanding of what's important right. in life. Right. Away from the materialist, you know, consumerist, uh, corporatist sense of success. Yeah. Towards something that's deeper. Yeah. And if that doesn't happen, if people somehow don't connect to their own inner connection to source, where the real satisfaction is. Yeah. And move away from this endless consumption we're mode. Done. We're done. We're done. It's the only yeah. thing that actually is going to make the big difference. That's why when people try to relegate like plant medicine to some like hippie 60s resurgence, like I said, no, 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 no. This is part of the salvation of it the is. planet. I mean, it sounds so grand to say that, but but you got to stand behind that because it's true. If you don't give people uh, a non non materialist kind of opening, um, uh, it's you know we're devout. We'll just devour ourselves. We're already doing it. So it, there's an urgency to the moment, and I don't know if that means. You know, one of the things that a lot of people say when they first drink ayahuasca, I certainly said, is like, we need to get every politician in the world to drink this. Like, that's such a common kind of first, because you have that heart explosion. And in that place, you're like, war? Who could ever declare war on people? You know, totally. it feels like madness. And you you kind of wake up from the disease of slumber that we're all under. So I think it's a, I think it's a big deal. Now, I think it has to be, I don't think you can just do ayahuasca and dance in the jungle, I think there's more to be done, you know? I, and I love this, um, Terrence McKenna has this thing about, uh, you know, when you're, when you're in the psychedelic experience, you're like a, a, a fisherman out on the high seas of consciousness and you lower your nets. And he said, you're not looking for little uh, minnows that will, you know, like, like, oh, your pinky fits exactly into your nose, like little things that are meaningless. And he said, you're not looking for ideas so big that they're going to sink the boat. He said, you're looking for medium sized fish, like medium sized ideas that you can take back and have fish dinner with the folks on shore, like that you can actually bring back. And that's what I found. You know, I've talked before my parents knew that I did ayahuasca, I would share with them things that I had learned without telling them the source. And they never looked at me like I was crazy. They would say, wow, that's really beautiful. But I didn't tell them, like, a plant told me this. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I just told them, like, hey, I've been thinking about this thing. And they're like, wow, that's really wonderful. You know, and that was part of the reason I didn't publish the book was I felt like I actually had something to say that I didn't want the message to get lost in, you know, TV star does, you know, advocates hallucinogens. So how 
do you bring that back? How do you bring that out now through the work that you're doing? Do you feel like you're dropping little? I always try to. I mean, I. There's a character that Zac Efron plays in my second film, Liberal Arts, and he's wearing a Shipibo Indian um, shirt and a, a, a you know a Peruvian hat. He never says ayahuasca. He never says plants, but he's the ayahuasca of the movie because he's always trying to get the main character to connect with his heart and get out of his head. And he's, you know, so there's certain things like that that are, I can drop in a movie and I don't have to uh, feel like I'm a polemicist or, or, or trying to have some political agenda, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I try to make m movies that are about love and kindness on some level or at the very least um, redemption, you know, salvation. It's so interesting. I was raised Jewish, but I, I find myself super attracted to these very Christian words like mercy, grace, and forgiveness are just like words that really resonate with my heart. And so I try to make art that uh, touches on those things. And then um, I started a couple years ago, Ben urged me to do it, to start doing a, a newsletter. And I thought it would be um, that thing that I, uh, Brett sent to you. They're, yeah, they're right. called, I call them newsletters or someone called them newsletters. It kind of stuck. Um, but I do like a monthly or bi-monthly newsletter and a lot of people get them. And I just write about where I am, you know? And the last one that you read was me, about me feeling kind of blah and uninspired. And it got such a great response because people, I think that um, the Instagram culture makes everyone think that everyone looks great and has it all together while everyone really feels rotten or, or less than inspired at the very least. And um, to have someone who has some visibility and um, looks like, oh, I, should, you know, I bet he's happy. But that guy from How I Met Your Mother, he's probably happy. You'd assume, <laughs> like, right? You'd assume, of course. And for me to say, like, no, I'm actually having a hard time, and this is how I this is how I deal with it, and when I have these hard times. And um, if people who are listening want to sign up, you can go to my <laughs> Instagram page. It's in the bio, the link. But I love relating to people this way because it makes me feel less alone, and it, I think it makes uh, it helps other people feel less alone. And and I I um I think that one of the good uh, uses of celebrity is um, to make to help people feel less alone in their suffering, it's not all to just distract them from their hardship. A lot of times, it's saying like, you know, I I hurt too, I'm having a hard time, and I'm going to say this publicly. I um I heard some NPR like This American Life about uh, these these parents. Uh, oh no, a, a husband had this regressive brain disease. It was terrible. Like he he just regressed to a child, and it's very rare. And she made a comment. She said. Um, no celebrities or celebrities' children have this, so it doesn't get a lot of funding or attention. And you realize that, like, it's horrible for anyone to get stricken with any disease, but, like, when a Michael J. Fox gets Parkinson's, it can move the needle. You know what I mean? And, and uh, I read this thing, I think Meg Ryan said this thing, like, when a light is shining on you, move close to the things that also need a light shine, shown on them. You know? And, I, and I'm still figuring out exactly what that is. I have certain charities that I adore and support really uh, robustly in my own private way. And I try to let people know about them. Um, I certainly, I think I have a little bit, I think some people know that I'm into plants <laughs> and meditation. You know, uh -huh. I've had, I've had people that I didn't know, you, you know, like at big parties be like, I need to talk to you, you know? And I'd be like, I didn't know you knew me. And they're like, I want to do ayahuasca. What do I do? <laughs> so I think I became like a little bit of an ambassador, you know, people talk, but um, well, you know, it doesn't exist yet to the best of my knowledge. What's that? The movie about, and you know, this guy, I know that we meet, we meet these guys all the time. The sea level guy 
who was like totally locked into the, to doing the corporate thing. Yeah. And then they have the knock on the door moment when things are not working and they go to Peru and they change their life. Right. You know, it's hard. I found that the psychedelic experience is so, um, even, you know, like what was that? Blueberry. You've seen that clip from Blueberry, that, that, that psychedelic Western. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I right. mean, it okay. kind of yeah, gets yeah. a little close, mm -hmm. but it's not just a visual thing. There's a consciousness that has taken over your body and is communicating through your brain. It's not about the visuals at all. Right. Ultimately, even though you have these incredible personal visions, maybe you right. do, you don't. At a certain point, I don't know about you, but at a certain point for me, I realized, let go of the spectacular vision because it's actually keeping me from going deeper. The vision, sometimes you, you have to say like, enough. I need to get to the truth of what's going on because sometimes they can be so overwhelming and so distracting and, and gorgeous. And gorgeous, but yeah. also a little bit The production design is off the, yeah. off the hook. It's, yeah. a, it's fantastic. But, um, but I, I, I wondered, I tried to write something that um, I just got stuck on, but it was about a kind of disgraced movie studio exec who um, ends up kind of having a psychedelic experience without, it's unexplained. I mean, he just is in the woods and, you know, it's just this strange, mystical experience. And I was never able to quite crack it. And I wonder sometimes rather than being literal about a mystical experience, which sounds like a contradiction, but if you if, if it's better to find uh, an analogous kind of story that you can tell, you know, like Groundhog Day, for instance, is like a very trippy, psychedelic movie without saying like, oh, he really must have taken something. You know what I mean? Right, that's true, for yeah. real. Yeah. But there's also something about, and this is this sort of falls into what, you know, the Charles Eisenstein idea of the new story. Yeah. Like, there are these archetypal stories that when they hit the culture, sometimes become the avenue for conversation so that people understand that a particular path, a particular action that they take is yeah. available to them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that's the thing which I'm seeing so much of in terms of, you know, people who are accomplished, successful, intelligent, educated, well-to-do folks in the world understanding that their life path is really a disaster <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that they're contributing to something yeah. that's not doing anybody Absolutely. any good. Absolutely. And they're getting their own private wake-up moment uh -huh. and they're going down that road and they're coming out. I mean, I guess it's a little bit eat, pray, love if you do it in a gentle, soft way, but there's right. something else that goes, to me, more interesting and can be way deeper. And I also think some of the old, some of these ancient perennial stories actually provide a map, like, you know, the Odyssey, like the, trying to get home, you know, with series of trials when you're trying to get home or, you know, the seven trials of Hercules or whatever, those can feel psychedelic. I mean, you can oh, yeah. feel, you have nights where you're like, you had seven trials. <laughs> you know what I mean? For real. And, um, and I think there's something, even, the, you know, the life of Jesus or the life of Abraham or Moses, you know, the burning bush is a deeply psychedelic story. I'm, I'm, there's a, uh, an Israeli psychologist named Benny Shannon who, who proposed, do you know this theory? I, go ahead. That yeah. he, that he thought that, uh, or he proposed quite convincingly that um, the Israelites were under the, the spell of a, a, an ayahuasca-like uh, thing. Um, the acacia tree, which is mentioned all over the Bible, has DMT in it. Right. And so there were these you know, pagan cults that would use plants, probably. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've had my version of the golden calf and the, and the burning bush and the, the parting of the Red Sea, all that stuff. I've, 
I've I've been I've been there. Oh yeah, well that's you, you know. that's the power of of having these kinds of experiences. And only and and just to say, they don't only have to happen with plant medicine or with psychedelics. Yeah, they can happen because you're doing other kinds of spiritual work. You're going deep into meditation. Yeah. It's just you can have a life threatening experience that well we'll that bring can that about all kinds of things can like knock you into that into that other space. Yeah, um, near death experiences can certainly do that. Yeah, which is you know yeah. whole, those are astonishing too. The NDEs, yeah, wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's all part of this kind of continuum of, of spiritual experience that we just don't give credit to or credence yeah, to in our yeah, culture. Yeah. Which, you know, for me, it was the psychedelic thing, the ayahuasca thing that opened me up to understand that that was even possible, that yeah. all these things were possible. The, the thing for me that I found at a certain point, I was doing it so much that I started to feel that I knew what my homework was. You know, you get homework, yeah. like quite literally like, you got to apologize to this person. Mm-hmm. You got to, you know what oh, I mean? Like, yes. like just like, oh, you know, you got to stop eating that food. It's not good for your system. You can feel it. All these things. Mm-hmm. I started to, to, my homework wasn't changing. And I think that I, I stepped away. I didn't do, I just did a ceremony like in November, but I hadn't done one for three years. And it was good for me. It was good for me because I had to integrate and I had to, um, I, I, because, um, you know, uh, Ramdas tells that great story about when he gave Neem Karoli Baba the, the acid, he gave it to him twice and nothing happened to him. He was with right. him for 12 hours, both times, nothing happened to him. And he asked him about it and Neem Karoli Baba said, uh, it's good, it's good medicine. Uh, he said, it, it can take you into the room with Christ, but you're not allowed to stay there. And I thought, I, I've really meditated on that. Like I have felt, I have had experience, I am saturated with the oneness of the universe like absolutely fused with the, I've also been in hell. You know what I mean? Like it's been all over the place, but, but those, those, those fusion experiences where you're at like the eighth level of heaven, like where you're, you're, it's just so holy. You can't even believe it. And then you come back and there's always a little bit of sadness when your ego restructures itself. And you're like, Oh, I guess I, well, I want to do a crossword puzzle, you know, like, or whatever you, you know, or your habits or whatever. Um, coffee, I think I should start drinking coffee again. And, um, but I think that there's, there, it then becomes about diligence and about... Um, well, the integration. The integration and, and about... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just being vigilant with yourself about, okay, I'm not in a ceremonial space right now, but um, Jack Kornfield has that great book, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. Right. Which is just, that's the phrase, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just have to do the laundry. Well, you always got to do the laundry. You always got to do the laundry. Yeah, that's sometimes right. you have the ecstasy. Right. The ecstasy doesn't happen as often as laundry. But there's there's a sadness to doing laundry after the ecstasy. Because you think there's some part of your brain that's like, I'm going to hold on to this forever and ever and I'll never be the same. I know, but the trick is actually discovering the ecstasy in, in the, the laundry. laundry. In yeah. the laundry. That's and right. Gonna, and I think that's really what any good. proper kind of Zen teacher would be, you know, right. teaching. And honestly, I mean, listen, everybody's different, but in my ayahuasca experiences, I was taught how to find the laundry as ecstatic. Mm-hmm. So it can happen in the right context in a ceremony, but everybody's different and everybody gets access to different things. Ultimately, for me, working with plant medicine was a training in how to connect with spirit guides, yeah. with energetic beings that are, you know, out there, Yeah, but they're not out there. They're in you right. and you don't know how to find them. Right. Because the way our society presents this aspect of existence, you ignore all of that. Even when they, the, they start knocking on the door going, pay attention to me, right. pay attention to me, you walk the other way. Well, because there's so much that's also saying, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. 
which the society actually values. Yeah. This stuff, the society doesn't value because it says to you, basically, you're out of your mind. If you pay attention to that, you're crazy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But if you pay attention to like, oh, get that Cadillac, (laughs) it's like, oh, you're a really smart guy. It's so crazy how we just value this this consumption as if it's some, I don't know, it's, it's really nuts. It's really nuts. Yeah. Brett asked me to ask you a question. Sure. When are you going to do your high school movie? Are you writing it? <laughs> I was just talking to Jesse, my producer, who's, who's Brett's dear friend. Um, yeah, we were talking about that because I think Brett would want to be involved. You know, like we, there's people that really want to, you know, make make a, would want me to make a movie in Columbus, Ohio, which I, I, I shot um, liberal arts in Gambier, Kenyan, where I went to school. And we shot a couple of days in Columbus, but um, there's a really, Columbus is a great town. It is. Yeah, it's a great town. And it's a, it's a lot cooler than when we grew up there. It, it's really exploded. It is actually surprisingly yeah. cool. To yeah. a New York guy who like showed up there yesterday for the first time, yeah. and I'm like walking around going, "There's a lot going on." Here. Yeah, yeah. The largest gay population outside of San Francisco. Oh, Outs- is that right? I was Somebody yesterday told me there is more. There's a bigger gay population. It might in be Columbus. per capita. Re- look into that. Maybe it might it's be per, per capita. capita. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, this yeah, yeah. I was thinking yeah. about New yeah. York and L.A. Is like is that the possible? art scene, the music, the the uh, the food is terrific. Like it's a it's a it's a really great town. It's it's kind of a fun town to be from, you know. And I like I like returning. But to Brett, uh, you can Brett if you're listening. Uh, I'm on it. I'm I'm doing my best. But I'm I've got so many projects going. I'm trying. Yeah. Ah, uh, that's the worst excuse. <laughs> 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 Josh, thanks so much. Oh man, this was this was a real treat. Really loved having you here. All right, yeah, thanks so much. I want to thank Josh Radner for joining us, and you too for being with us. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Josh Radner, it's R A D N O R, and sign up for his newsletter there. I want to thank our producer Jose Alfaro and the Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience. Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Go check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. 